we've spent uh, the last month or so uh, doing some uh, commemorative work. Uh, on Mother's Day, we had a bunch of families come up here, and we celebrated the additions to their families as together we com- uh, covenanted with them uh, to see these kids grow up to know and follow Jesus Christ. But isn't it great when, when a newborn comes to the planet and we, we get the joy of that, whether it's our family or our church family, it's so great, and, and it's right for us to commemorate that. A, a week after that, we uh, uh, commemorated the achievements of our graduates, the high school seniors uh, who finished and made it. Uh, even through COVID and all that craziness. And, uh, and it's so great to be able to celebrate with them and their families, that achievement. Uh, I don't know if it's worth celebrating, but uh, this is actually, this week marks uh, the 30th anniversary of my being in full-time ministry, which uh, is, makes me old. Thank you. Oh, that's why I did that. Anytime I ever tell you something about me, my hope is that you'll clap. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but... Uh, I was just thinking back about that this morning as I was getting ready to talk to you. I was like, 30 years, that's a long time. If you're not yet 30 years old, could you raise your hand? How's it going? I'm, you're, you're like younger than my, you know, pastor stuff. Anyway, uh, uh, here's what I figured out this, this morning, though. Even if I hadn't done this as, as a career, as a job, as a, as, as a you know, ministry is still mine because I am Christ's and he is mine. Does everybody get that? So I may not have the title in the office at the building, but I understand that my, my Christ uh, faith, my faith in Jesus, um, ipso de facto, if I use that Latin, right? Uh, I'm a minister for Jesus, even if it's not on my business card. It would look different if I wasn't doing this full time, but I'd still be called uh, to be his minister in this world that he's given me. Uh, Calvin, as he was sorting through his theologies, called it the priesthood of all believers, it's not just for the guys who get paid or the ladies who get paid. It's for all of us. I'm so grateful that uh, huge chunks of us understand that and have given our lives to serving him in various capacities. We always need to be ready to figure out how we can minister. The, 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 the dictionary defines ministry or what it is to minister like this. To minister is to attend to needs or to serve and supply. That's why in governments that have them, the prime minister is the first servant, meant to be, not always working that way, but that's what that title means. You're the first servant of that country, of that government. The ministers of defense, and they're called ministers because they're here to serve. It's what ministry is, it's service. Attending to the needs of those in your stead. If we've been saved by Jesus, uh, we get all kinds of titles. We're called witnesses in Acts chapter 1. We're called disciples in Matthew 28. Uh, It's implied that we're soldiers in Ephesians 6 when when, uh, Paul tells the Ephesians uh, in in Ephesus, that's where the Ephesians are from, uh, that they need to put on the armor of God. It's this picture of, of we're in a fight. And whether you like it or not, the battle's here. You are meant to wear this armor and serve our Savior in the life that he's given you. Full stop. No questions asked. It's not enough that you just get the armor and you, like me as a seventh grader, kind of sit at the end of the bench for your basketball team. You're wearing the uniform. You got the warm-ups on. You never take them off because you never get in the game. Week after week, game after game, I'd come out and I didn't need to clean my stuff. I never got it sweaty. I never saw the floor. So many Christians, they think, good, I got my fire insurance. 
I'm saved. My sins are forgiven. I could just kind of ride this out until Jesus comes back or I go to see him. That's not what we've been called to. We are on mission with Jesus. In fact, if you read the Gospels, I don't know if you've ever kind of looked and said, why did it happen this way? Has anybody ever read the Bible and be like, why'd that, why'd that occur instead of this? Like, if, if we're just being efficient and Jesus comes to die for our sins on the cross and, and to rise again so we can have victory in life with him, why doesn't he, as he's coming out of anonymity as a 30-year-old, just kind of go straight to Jerusalem and, and, and die for our sins? Why doesn't he just do that? No, he, he goes through his baptism. He goes through, uh, as we've read in, in the first parts of John, calling disciples to himself, these, these, these men that he, and, and others, women that would follow them, that he would mentor. He, he spends three and a half years leading up to his, his chief aim, this work on the cross. Three and a half years. Why does he do that? So that he can model for us, for those original followers, for us who read his word, what it is to be a minister of his gospel. As we arrive today in John chapter 4, uh, like I just said, he's already uh, in John chapter 1 been described for us by the writer of the gospel of John, one of his disciples. Uh, uh, those first 18 verses are just chock full of truth about who Jesus is. Go back and read them if you haven't read them for a while. Uh, in the latter half of chapter 1, he calls uh, some of his initial followers, initial disciples to come and join him. In Acts, cha- or Acts we're in John, just so we're clear. In John chapter 2, he, uh, he takes them to a wedding, and so begins uh, the object lessons of service. He does a miracle, turns water into wine, and provides for a young couple at their wedding feast. Uh, they shift gears as they head to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. You might remember what he does there? Wrecks it. Sometimes ministry is a little more aggressive, a little more pointed in its nature. Service can sometimes be rebuke and correction. The next thing we see in the story of Jesus is told by John is in chapter 3. He meets with a Pharisee late at night, a guy named Nicodemus. And he starts trying to help this guy rewire his thinking about who his God is. And he says that famous verse that many of us have memorized, God loved the world so much that he sent me, his only son, so whoever would believe in me would have eternal life. Now we come to a, a second conversation recorded for us by John. Little different clientele. This is not a muckety-muck of the Jewish faith like Nicodemus was. Uh, This is a a beaten down, um, probably shame-filled woman uh, that he meets at a well. Uh, Just to kind of set the stage for what I'm going to talk about in the next 60, 80 minutes. Uh, Some people will go here, it's like, he's not kidding. You just, anyway, uh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go through the first nine verses of this chapter and we're gonna learn three things that are very important to us as, as fellow ministers of this gospel from the chief minister, the prime minister himself, Jesus, okay? We're gonna learn what, what it is for us to be servants of his in this ministry he's called us to. But then I'm just gonna kinda read through the last 16 verses and we're just gonna kinda riff on it a little bit. And we're gonna learn uh, some things that are so important, uh, crucial, to the good news being understood. So first, these first three things. Reading uh, chapter four, verse one, it says this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist, okay? Uh, although 
parenthetically, verse 2, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples baptized. Jesus, verse 3, decides to leave Judea and depart again for Galilee, where he had come from initially. Uh, That's where he grew up. That's where his home was. And so they're leaving. Here we go. Mediterranean Sea. The southern part of Israel is called Judea. That's where they've been hanging out. Uh, They're going to head back up north towards the Sea of Galilee, which is up here at the uh, the tip of the Jordan River, and, uh, and hang out there f- for a while. Um, uh, it says in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. That's all it says. It's an interesting statement. Because if you're just going, like, you know, journey-wise, uh, is there no other way to get to Galilee except to go through Samaria? The answer is no. There's, there's another way. In fact, there was a preferred way if you grew up in Israel. Here's why. Samaria not desirable. The Samaritans were a mongrel Jewish uh, people. I say mongrel because uh, they're from the northern kingdom. If you go back to the Old Testament, basically, not not to belabor, but in the Old Testament story of Israel, it splits. There's a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. Both kingdoms eventually are judged by God. But the northern kingdom, Israel as it's called, goes first, and Samaria is a part of Israel. The Assyrians come. They're also called the Cuthites. Don't cuff. Anyway, uh, but the Cuthites, I, I said that in the mirror this morning and I thought I'd try it. Won't, won't happen again. All right. Uh, <laughs> but the Cuthites are also the, uh, the Assyrians and the Cuthites and the Israelites, it tells us in their story, uh, they intermarry. Big no-no in the Jewish faith. Gentiles, boo, right? You're not meant to, to, to you know, take a Gentile husband or wife, but the, the Samaritans had no problem doing that. Uh, the, the southern kingdom, just so you know, they were taken away by Babylon, and there's no report of those people being forced to intermarry. And so the Jews in the south, this might startle you in the world where you know, we live, where no one feels like they're better than anybody else, but the Jews in the south, did everybody pick up my sarcasm just then? The Jews in the south thought they were better than the Samaritans in the north because the Samaritans had inter- intermingled, inter- intermarried, and so they were to be avoided. In fact, if you walked through Samaria, you would, as you were leaving the border, tramp the dust off your feet so you didn't get any Samaritan cooties. Most of Israel, if they were traveling north and they were in the this, in this, in this southern region called Judea, west of the Jordan River, they would cross the river go up through Perea, oh, I should do it here. They would cross the river, go up through Perea, and then cross the river, the Jordan River again, and head back towards Galilee. They would take the long way around so that they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. But here's all it says in our story. It says in verse four, he had to pass through Samaria. Now we know, objectively, he didn't have to. In fact, preferably, most Jews didn't. So what could this possibly mean? The father told the son, I need you in Samaria. And the son told his fellow followers, we're going through Samaria, which I'm guessing the guys were not excited about. You know the whole Samaritan stuff, right? But that's where he went. It gets us to our first ministry principle. We need to minister as God directs, regardless of where that is. Christians, especially in the culture that we are in, are typically creatures of comfort. In fact, I know it's not you, I, tr- I pray it's not us, but sometimes Christian make their, Christians make their Christianity all about them and their comfort. It's just about what I can get. It's just about where I feel best. I'm going to go to the church with the music I like, with the chairs that aren't hard, with the pastor that I can tolerate, who usually gets done on time. 
We have all this checklist of, of why we are a part of some fellowship, and often that checklist revolves around our preferences, our comforts. Here's what the Christian life is really about. Not my comfort, but my Father's glory. Not my honor, but his honor. And so sometimes as I serve him as a minister of his, he's gonna call me to places where otherwise I would not prefer to go. As we're gonna see, he's gonna call me at times where I am tired and I would prefer not to be involved. He's gonna call me to people that I certainly don't wanna talk to. But he's gonna do this because he wants to work through us so that others might know him and he might be glorified all the more. You know, God uh, often moves most in places where his followers like least. You know, read the story of Paul in the book of Acts. Paul gets thrown in jail uh, on the regular. Like he's just got like a, it's like a pass. He's got like, you know, like here, I'm back in. Here you go. And he just keeps going to jail. But never once do you see Paul in jail being like, this is it. I mean, twice. This is crazy. But three times. I'm certainly not going to praise God now. And I'm just going to sit in here and do my time. No, he always ends up singing songs, praising his God, and doors open, and, and jailers come to Christ, and the whole family with him. That's the story of the Philippian jail. He, he ends up writing letters that we have in our Bibles that uh, tell of his joy in the Roman prison that he was in. Saying, isn't it great? I'm tied to all these guards and they, they can't help it. They have to listen to the gospel day and night. It's so cool. Paul understood, hey man, wherever God needs me, that's where I go. And I let him use me however he desires. I was a 19-year-old in uh, college and I went to work at a Christian camp in Wisconsin. Um, you know, the first week you're hanging out with all the staff. It's really cool, you're all staying together. I, I met all these great friends who are still friends of mine. They stood up with me in my wedding. And, uh, and, and, and we just had a great time, but we had different jobs. They were all camp counselors. They went off to where the kids actually stayed for the week, and, and I was the sports guy, surprise. Um, I was in charge of anything that had a ball, archery, really fun, just so you know, and, uh, and, then, and then a ropes course. And so I stayed in a different place away from those guys, and they ended up putting me in with the maintenance team and the cooks, none of who I, I had gotten to know during the first week of orientation to, to my... <laughs> To my chagrin, to my, uh, uh, I stink. Uh, I thought this isn't going to be fun at all. I don't like these people. I don't want to get to know them. I just kind of hid in my bunk and, and only slept there. Has anybody been in that roommate situation? Just me. Okay, so uh, <laughs> that's how it started. But over time, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, worked in me, softened my heart, and despite my, you know, unwillingness, I couldn't help but start liking these guys, getting to know these guys. Um, one of the guys was a guy named Gary. His parents had sent him to this camp as a college sophomore because uh, he was a hot mess. Uh, they were hoping that this camp would kind of straighten him out. Uh, so he was on the maintenance team, and, and, and their hope was that as he hung out with Christians, he would be more Christian. Uh, first, first month, that was not the case. In fact, Gary, you ever read the story about Paul and the uh, thorn in his flesh? Gary was my thorn. He was, he was awkward, inappropriate. He would ruin the joke. Has anybody ever had that guy around you? Like everybody else is having a great time, and then this guy comes in, he's like, boo, 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 boo. Oh, man, joke assassin. And then off you go, right? One night I'm, I'm sleeping in my bunk, and, and uh, I wake up to the sound of sobbing. 
Um, this kid, Gary, had crawled into a closet in our, our dorm, and uh, he, he was just sitting in there crying. No one else heard it. No one else got up, just me. And so I go over, you know, I'm like, and I look in, I'm like, Gary, what's going on? And through his tears, he just started opening up his heart to me. Uh, I don't have the mercy gift, just so you know. That's probably a good thing to tell a pastor, or a pastor to tell his flock. Anyway, uh, but that's not, my first, that's not my first thing. But in this particular instance, my heart over, overflowed with love for this guy in ways that it hadn't yet. And I sat down in this dark closet with Gary, knees to knees, and I just listened to him. I, 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 I just patted his shoulder as he cried. I prayed with him and for him that he would understand the love of God and that it would change his heart. Uh, I've had, like I said, 30 years of doing this. Uh, I've never seen a turnaround in a person's life like Gary's turnaround. He woke up the next morning, a new guy. The, the Holy Spirit had completely rearranged his thinking. He, he went to work with joy. He served beyond what he was asked to do. He, he got hungry for the scriptures. I got to hang out with him every once in a while when we had time as he was learning the Bible. I came back later that winter, uh, you know, for kind of a reunion of that uh, summer staff. And Gary was still working at this camp. He didn't go back to school because he felt compelled by God to be a part of the ministry that this camp was doing. He was growing like a weed. And it all started because his parents sent him to this camp to fix him. And he hung out in this, uh, you know, this dorm with a guy who didn't really like him. But the spirit overwhelmed that jerk of a guy, and they spent some time praying in a closet. And that was the beginning of the change in Gary. How many people, everybody look at me, how many people has God called us to? And we've been like, I'm not going. Not going. It's too uncomfortable over there. It's going to require too much of me. What a lie. How many people have we missed out on impacting because we made this Christ life all about ourselves? The first thing that we learn is that we need to minister as God directs regardless <clears throat> of where it is. The second thing we need to learn is this. We need to minister when God allows regardless of how we feel. If you can put that up for me, Chris, I know I went out of sequence. But minister when God allows regardless of how you feel. So verse 5 says this, when he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, um, that's where they end up, it's a town called Sychar, um, uh, Jacob's well was there. Jacob had dug a well uh, and had, had given it to his son Joseph and, and to those who uh, were a part of his family. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, sat down beside this well. It says there that it was the sixth hour. And so Jesus comes up against this well. And you got to understand, they probably left early in the morning while it was still dark. It takes a while to walk from Galilee, or excuse me, from Judea to Galilee. And so they wanted to get going. And he'd been walking all day in the desert. They had probably exhausted their water supply, you know, sometime earlier in the morning. Uh, he had done the last probably two or three hours with nothing to drink, nothing to eat. I went out yesterday morning and uh, I did, I counted them because we're doing a contest here at church. I did 21,000 steps. Yeah, that was a lot. Uh, uh, it, it, you know, was running some and walking a lot. But uh, um, at the end of it, I was sapped. Anybody ever been, you know, out in the Florida sun recently and just been working hard or walking or whatever, and you get back into the air conditioning, I sat down in my, in my recliner in my uh, uh, living room and I started watching a, a, a DVR of uh, 
uh, uh, How It's Made. Great show. It just shows you how stuff. I was watching how balloons are made. Fascinating. Encourage you to watch it. Uh, but I, it's 11 in the morning. I'm falling asleep. Why? The owner comes in. It's like, Mark, what are you doing? It's 11 o'clock. I'm like, babe, I'm just fried, man. That's how Jesus felt as he sat down next to this well. The sixth hour in the Jewish clock is high noon. It's as hot as it's going to get. And he's there and he's tired. And then here she comes. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Lots of questions there. Typically, the women from Sychar or any other town would go to whatever well they got their water from early in the morning or late at night when it was not as hot. They would go together for protection to be able to help each other. But this woman goes by herself at noon. I'm guessing she didn't want to be bothered by other people. And would anybody blame Jesus after a long morning walk for not wanting to be bothered with himself or himself with anybody else? Would anybody blame Jesus for that? Come on. How many of us, you know, pass people all the time and all we give them is the nod? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like I, wa- I walk from the gym, uh, you know, on 60 past Portillo's back to my house and there's always someone sitting at the bus stop and invariably you're going to, you know, invariably you're going to lock eyes with this person. Well, what do you do now? Well, this is what you do, right? That's, that's, that's America for I see you, but we're not talking. Is there, am I right? And they do it back and you just keep going. Why doesn't that happen here? No one would blame Jesus. He's tired. She doesn't want to talk. She's coming out when she's not supposed to. This could have been a nothing story. But Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Tells us parenthetically that his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. They probably had taken, you know, all the water bottles with them or whatever he could have used to get himself a drink. He doesn't have any of that. It's like the person who goes to the, you know, the Ellington, you know, shops and, and rides with someone who says that they're going to be back at the car at noon, but they aren't there and they've got the keys. <laughs> that may or may not have happened with me. Anyway. Minister when God allows, regardless of how you feel. Jesus is tired. He's hot. He's rarely alone. We can assume that his disciples, which almost happens on every one of Jesus' walks, are just peppering him with questions, right? No one would blame him for just kind of wanting to nod off, take a break, be by himself. But he understands, this is why I had to go through Samaria. She's here. Let's talk. Oh, that God would give us that mindset, that mindset that says, you know, I'm tired. Uh, I'd prefer not to, but if this is what you have for me, Father, help me to honor you with this moment, with this person, regardless of how I feel. Got to watch that in uh, living color this past week as uh, every night, Monday through Friday, uh, people who had been at work at jobs all day long, some of them driving an hour to and an hour from just to get here around six o'clock so that they could sit down and be screamed at and around for two hours by little kids that they don't know, that they have no responsibility for, also that these kids could hear the love of Jesus Christ preached to them and 20 of them could put their faith in him. That's, yeah, you could clap for him. But that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he's modeling for us. Hey, man, 
In the same way that God does some of his greatest things in places we don't want to go, God does some of his greatest things when we are completely tapped out. In fact, I think I've read that in the Bible before. Uh, When we are at our weakest, he is at his strongest through us. Now, that doesn't mean you never take a break. Don't hear me preach that you should never pause. There's Sabbath ideas in Scripture, and please, take a breath every once in a while. But if your excuse for not being used of God is, I'm tired, well, that might be perfect. I marvel at how often God goes for the tired, the weakest, the lowest, the least, when he chooses those that he's going to use. It says in verse 9 that the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews, it says, John here says parenthetically, have no dealings with Samaritans. Third thing, first one is minister uh, wherever God sends you, regardless of where that is. The second one, minister when God allows you, regardless of how you feel. The third one is this, minister to whomever God brings, regardless, period. Okay, you've probably heard this preached before. Travis actually talked about it a couple weeks ago. We didn't know we were going to talk about the same things, but here we are. And, and, and here in this situation, like John just says, Jesus has no business talking to this woman. She's a strange female, she's, and she's got three strikes against her. Racially, she's a Samaritan. She's unclean. Jesus should not be talking to her. Religiously, she's a Samaritan. You know, the Samaritans were kind of like in a Jewish cult. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They they thought the rest of the scriptures were not really scriptures at all. So they didn't believe the prophets that had been written or or, or the history books that had been written and circulated in the Jewish faith. They didn't hold to any of those things. It was just the first five books. And so religiously, she was believing stuff that, you know, wasn't entirely true. She didn't have the whole truth. And so Jesus uh, crosses the racial lines, crosses the religious lines, crosses the gender lines. Did you know in the Jewish faith you weren't supposed to talk to strange women? In fact, the Pharisees had made it like a, a, a trophy of theirs. Like if they were Boy Scouts and they had merit badges on their sashes or whatever. If you're young, ask someone. Anyway, uh, but they, they had this actual marriage badge called the Bleeding and Bruised Pharisee. It was a, a badge given to Pharisees who when a strange woman would start walking down the street to them, they would cover their eyes and start bouncing off of walls and farm animals and be bruised and cut up and bleed. But it would be like a, a, a badge of courage of theirs because they had managed to avoid a strange woman. Jesus startles this female. She's like, what are you doing talking to me? You're not supposed to talk to me. And Jesus is like, no, man, this is perfect. I know that God has called me here, that he's called me now, even though I'm tired. And he's called me to you because you're the one that needs to hear the gospel that I have to give. You know, again, when I think of Gary's when I think of uh, a young lady who came to live with us, you know, almost seven, eight years ago, uh, who just talked to me in the corner one morning and, and visited with my wife. It's a long story, but she ended up living with us for almost a year. Um, those were not on our schedule moments. Those were not things that we thought, this is what we need to do that morning. It just kind of happens. And you don't have to take someone into your house and live for a year to be necessarily in the will of God, but you need to be willing if that's what he calls you to do. Again, 
Just think of the times, perhaps, that we've missed because we look at someone and we think, undesirable, can't relate. Again, grateful for the, the adults who came up here and hung out with screaming third graders and got over themselves and said, this is, this is what matters because they need to hear the gospel. Now, what's going to remain? Let me just hit it one more time. We need to minister as God directs, regardless of where that is. We need to minister when God allows. Regardless of how we feel, we need to minister to whomever God brings, regardless. Everybody got those? I'm just going to quick read the rest of the verses. Everybody ready? Jesus answers her. He says, if you knew the gift of God, what, did he, what has he already told Nicodemus? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Who's the gift? Jesus says, if you knew me, if you knew who I was and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, me, and I would have given you living water. The woman looks at him. Uh, living water is like at a premium in a desert. She looks at him and says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. How deep? 100 feet. Got to go down deep in Israel to get those, those rivers down below. She's like, you don't have a rope. You don't have a, a pail. You, it's 100 feet down there. How are you going to find this living water that you speak of? Where do you get that living water? Uh, she asks this question. It's rhetorical. Are you greater than our father Jacob? She's absolutely thinking, no. He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him or her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus hasn't been talking about actual water for a long time. She's been stuck on that, but he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm moving past, you know, a cup of refreshing water. I'm talking about spiritual water. I'm talking about a water that will fill you up and that you've needed. In fact, uh, we, can, we can't blame her if she doesn't understand this because she hasn't uh, read, perhaps, being a Samaritan and only having the first five books in her Bible, uh, she hasn't read the prophet Jeremiah, who uh, Travis preached to us a couple weeks ago in chapter 2 when Jeremiah says this in verse 13. He says, uh, God speaking through the prophet, my people, God says, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. And what does God call himself? Read it with me. The fountain of living waters. I didn't hear you. Are you still here? What just happened? What does God call himself? The fountain of living waters. He says, you've forsaken me and then you've hewed out or carved out for yourself cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So there's this well. He is our God. He is the son of God. And he is the source of living water. When we go to him, we can find from him and draw from him this pure, unending source of the water that only he can give. But here in Jeremiah and here with this woman, there's another source of water. They're well known in the desert. They were called cisterns. They weren't wells. They were like big stone buckets that were honed out of the ground. And you would hope that water would run off during the rains and that you know, uh, other sources might enable you to store water in these cisterns. But cisterns, I gotta put this down. Cisterns are kind of like coolers at the beach. Who's taking a cooler to the beach? Come on. When you get there, the ice is cold, it's still ice, there's two bags of it in there, you got your Subway sandwiches, your Oreo cookies, and all your iced tea and Cokes and stuff like that, but as the day goes on, that ice melts. And it does, it's not cold anymore, it's tepid. 
What's beyond that? Your kids have unwrapped their Subway sandwiches and left half of it in the water, and now that's disintegrated in the water, right? And there's salami floating around. The Oreos have been thrown in there too. They're soaked, and so you're like at noon, you're like, bah, we didn't get the Oreos, and you just throw those in the water. And now those have disintegrated, and then their kids are coming up with their pails, and they're throwing sand in the water. And at the end of the day, you look inside there, because it opens on this side. And that's what you got. All right, real quick. Jesus says, I want to give you this, but all you're drinking is this. She doesn't get it. I'm going to summarize for the sake of time. Many of you know the story. (laughs) She doesn't get it. She doesn't understand that she's been drinking from a broken cistern, a man-made holder of false water, dead water. What's hers? Anybody know her story? Earthly relationships. She's been married five times, Jesus is going to bring out. Five times you've been married. And the dude that you're sleeping with now, not even your husband. He's saying this to her after she says, yeah, tell me how I can get that living water again. She's probably walking away when he says to her, hey, that's great. Go back to town and bring back your husband. She's probably still walking when she says over her shoulder, yeah, I don't have a husband. And then he reads her mail. Yeah, you've had five. And the dude you're sleeping with now, you're not married to him. She turns around. Remember what she said? I could see that you are a prophet. He's got her attention. And if you are from God, if you're able to know these things, perhaps you can help me with a worship question. She's not going to talk about, uh, you know, relationships. She wants to talk about God. And so she says this to him. He says, which, which mountain? Our, our, our fathers say that we're supposed to worship God on this mountain. She was pointing to a mountain called Gerizim. It's, it's in, uh, in Genesis where Abraham, uh, for the first time when he comes into the promised land, he builds an altar on this mountain called Mount Gerizim. And so because they were Pentateuch worshipers, they took that as being the place where God should be worshiped. And so would it surprise you to know the Samaritans had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in 400 BC and, uh, you know, as, as a, uh, a, another uh, invading, uh, you know, power came through the region, they knocked that temple down, but they still worshiped their version of God on this mountain. And so when she asks him, hey, should we worship there like my father says I should, or, or should we worship like you Jews say? And Jesus says a bunch of stuff for sake of time. I'm not going to go into all of it. But he basically says, hey, listen, you're wrong. We're right. The Samaritans got this wrong. The Jews got it right. And because the Messiah is going to come from the Jews, you should follow what the Jews are saying. But what he, in essence, says is it doesn't matter which mountain. It's all changing. He says, because here's the deal. The hour is coming. And indeed, it is here now. You know when John writes about the hour in his gospel, what he's referring to almost every time when he says the hour is coming? It's the crucifixion. The moment where I will go to the cross is coming. And that's going to rewrite everything that you've ever known about what you believe. He says, we used to you know, wonder about where we should worship, but I'm going to tell you there's going to come a time where you're going to worship in spirit and in truth. Who's heard that one before? The spirit there in your Bibles is not capital S like the Holy Spirit. It's your spiritual self. It's your heart. It's, it's the stuff that goes on inside of you. In your heart, regardless of your location, regardless of the code of the laws and all those things, in your heart, you're going to worship in truth. Or if you take the Greek a little differently, you're going to worship the truth. John 14, verse 6, Jesus is leaving his friends and he says this to them. I am the way, say it with me, the truth 
and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus, in helping this woman get past her broken cistern and get onto the wavelength that is his truth, his gospel, minister to her and says to her, the hour is coming, it's here. The truth is in front of you. Because she says to him, yeah, I've been told that, that the Messiah is coming. And that's how it ends in verse 26. Have you been following along? Has it been showing up behind me? I don't know. He says to her, yeah, that Messiah that you're speaking of, right here. We'll pick up there next time. But Jesus uses this image of living water over and over again in his teaching. He says, people who come to me, they'll, they'll hunger no more, they'll thirst no more. He, in chapter seven, can I just tell you this real quick? In chapter seven, he goes back to Jerusalem. He's been up in Galilee, but he heads back to Jerusalem for a, a feast. It's called the Feast of Tabernacle. There's, there's three big feasts in the Jewish faith. There's Passover, that's when his crucifixion occurs. There's Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost. That's when the church gets its start in Acts chapter two. But then this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, doesn't get as much run. But it's at this feast, the feast that commemorates uh, the, the pilgrimage of, of Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles because it's all about the tents that they lived in when they were, you know, out there wandering around. It's a celebration of them finally receiving what God had promised them. So Jews would come from all around the region and they'd head to Jerusalem for the Feast of the, of the Tents or the Tabernacles. They'd build tents in the city streets and they'd hang out there for you know, six, seven days just celebrating. But on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is there in John chapter seven. And a strange thing, not strange, strange to us because we're not Jews, but a cool thing, I'll put it that way, uh, happens on that last day of the feast. The high priest comes to the temple. He gathers uh, his, his lower priests and those uh, who would join him in a parade. They leave the temple and they walk to a pool called the Pool of Siloam. He takes uh, a pitcher, a big gold one that would not be unlike this, and he fills it with water in the Pool of Siloam. And then he walks back to the temple with, with this parade of people singing the psalms, praising their God. In loud voices, the, the Feast of Tabernacles was all party, man. And he would go into the temple and he would take this pitcher of water and he would pour it on the altar itself. And when the water hit the altar, the people would explode with applause because that water hitting the altar was symbolic of the water that had been given to the nation of Israel in the desert as they wandered, in the times where they were without hope. God had given them given them living water. Moses tapped a rock at Meribah. He, he made bitter water pure. And then Jesus, as one commentator believes, at that moment in John chapter 7, verse 37, this is what happened. On the last day of feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts. This guy believes that as the water's hitting the altar, Jesus stands up wherever he was with his friends and he says this, hey guys, you heard the cheers. The priest just poured the water on the altar, but I'm here to tell you one more time, just like I told Sally from Sychar, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, let me talk to who's in the room right now. 
There's some of you out here who've heard about the living water for a long time, but you've never taken a drink. And you are insisting in life on drinking this garbage. Maybe you think it's money. If I just have enough money, I'll have fulfillment. Maybe you think it's power. Maybe you think it's fame. Read Ecclesiastes. The richest, most powerful, most famous guy in the Bible is a dude named Solomon. And every time he talks about the dirty water that comes from the broken cisterns, this is what he says. Meaningless. Meaningless. It's utterly meaningless. It can't fill you up. It won't fill you up. If that's you, if this is what you're drinking from, because you have never in your life understood what Jesus told that woman at the well, that you can have his living water. I implore you today, put your faith in Jesus and in him alone. He is the truth. And it's only through him that you can have the water that brings life. Now there's a bunch of you in here who have drank of this cup, amen? You are with Jesus. You're with me and with Jesus. But there are still these pockets of your life where you're going back to the cooler and drinking this garbage. Like a dog to its vomit, the Proverbs say. You continually forsake the living water that Jesus wants to give you, the the, the sanctification that he's called you to, and you continue to settle for what the world has to give. If you're the former, Trust Jesus today. Admit that you're a sinner. Repent of those sins. Believe that Jesus is the living water that gives you life and commit your life to him. But if you are a follower of Jesus and you're drinking of this garbage, may God convict you of that, free you of that, and fill you with what only he can give, his truth, his life. It's the way. It's the water that only Jesus gives.